0: You've tuned in to TV You Grew Up With, where we interview the people who created the greatest TV shows ever made. Here's your host, Jim Harold. Welcome to TV You Grew Up With. I'm Jim Harold, and so glad to be with you once again. And I think we have a real treat today. Now, I am a huge fan of classic TV. That's why I do this show. And I'm also a huge fan of The Twilight Zone, which in my book is one of my top two or three TV series of all times because I love everything kind of weird and head scratchers and mind benders and Twilight Zone is perfect for that. We've got a great guest to talk about the show. We'll talk a little bit about the other work that he's done because he's done a lot on a lot of different programs, both classic TV and old time radio. Martin Grahams Jr. is the author and co-author of more than 20 books And his book on The Twilight Zone, which we're going to talk about today, was the winner of the 2008 Rondo Award for Best Book of the Year. His recent endeavors include The Green Hornet, The Shadow, Science Fiction Theater, and The Time Tunnel. He's done books on all of those. Uh, He is a research consultant for a major film magazine and volunteers his time to help the Mid-Atlantic Nostalgia Convention held annually in Maryland every September. We're going to talk about his book from a few years back, but still just Ever so pertinent today, The Twilight Zone, unlocking the door to a television classic. Martin Grahams, Jr., welcome to the program today.
1: Thank you. Pleasure to be on the show.
0: Now, you're younger. So how in the world did you get so obsessed with classic television in general and, and then The Twilight Zone specifically?
1: Pretty much the only answer most young people my age would give is exposure. You know, it's popularly rerun, like on New Year's Eve marathons and and Fourth of July marathons and channel networks like the uh, local channels, science fiction channel, MeTV, they play them. So even today, a younger audience who never grew up with the program can get hooked on them because the stories are perfectly timeless. Um, They hold up today and they get rerun. And I think a lot of younger kids would be more into older programs if they were able to see more older programs.
0: Sure, there's some great stuff there. And speaking to that, there are a lot of great older television shows. And, you know, if you look at the Twilight Zone through a prism of today, they're not great special effects per se like we have in these movies and all of the, the superhero movies and those kind of things. Black and white, not even in color. And a lot of these shows are think pieces, which you wouldn't think would do particularly well with the audiences today. So why has The the Twilight Zone stood above almost every classic television show out there and still resonates very much this day to, to people, young and old?
1: It became a cult status, but the stories are timeless. I refer to them as wisdom fiction. And that is everybody can relate to some moral, whether it be the monsters are due on Maple Street or uh, Time Enough at Last. People can associate to today's standards. um, They were basically social commentaries. So anyone can look at today's headlines or even the recent news items and connect one-on-one. So in a plus uh, on the sense uh, technically, I think even 50 years from now, they are going to be relative. Even if the productions are dated, the stories will not.
0: And, uh, for example, if I remember correctly, Rod Serling, and we've interviewed her daughter on the various programs that we do and and have done other shows on him. The idea for him behind The Twilight Zone was that he had done all of these heavy-duty television plays, teleplays, which were kind of going out of style. And he always kind of had to push back uh, to discuss certain themes because they were controversial at the time, whether it be race relations or things like blacklisting or whatever the topic might be. Very difficult to get through the TV censors of the day. The Twilight Zone would be an opportunity to kind of wrap these stories uh, or these these uh, little nuggets of wisdom into a science fiction story. Therefore, kind of going over the heads of the censors, they don't really realize what the show is saying in many ways, but he could get out these nuggets of wisdom through his work. Is that kind of the idea that Sterling had behind The Twilight Zone?
1: Correct. Yeah, he wrote uh, scripts for a lot of his programs, U.S. Steel Hour, Craft Playhouse. He did Playhouse 90, which was uh, a major landmark show that CBS themselves admitted, even if we take a financial loss, which they did on quite most of them. They said, we want something that'll put this, the network on the map to at least turn around and get the prestige. Because Paley, who was president of CBS, said we need prestige. He says, we make a profit on a lot of programs. There's no reason why we can't take a loss and present something meaningful to the audience. And so Rod Serling was among the very first to, uh, in fact, he wrote the first two teleplays, and it was the second one, Requiem for a Heavyweight, that stole the Emmys that year. When they wanted him to do X number of scripts per year and they realized he was their golden boy, he took advantage of it and said, I want my own sci-fi show, and then they negotiated. And the deal was that he was supposed to write X number of scripts for Playhouse 90 every year, and in return, and a number of pilots too, and they and they said, in return, we'll give you your late night Friday time slot program, which of course was considered doomsday because it was up against Friday night fights on other networks. But uh, he took advantage of it. I think they knew exactly what he was doing with the show, and he did learn pretty quickly that he could have social commentary made and stated from the the lips of an alien from outer space more than a human being. And I wouldn't say he could get away with it, but the network at the time slot and the type of stories he was doing, they basically said, you know what? If if we get a lot of flack from viewers and we use these letters, we can use it as leverage. His show goes off the air. We still get our Playhouse 90 scripts. So they kind of let him do what he wanted to do. And ultimately on a small scale at the time it came out it gained a good bit of momentum and uh cbs just kept letting them do what he wanted to do but uh so he did learn early on social commentary could he could get away with it more with an alien saying it than a human being saying it
0: yeah, and it's interesting because we even see some of that later in Star Trek with uh, Gene Roddenberry and then some of the themes that they addressed that uh, maybe people uh, didn't quite catch on to or, or kind of maybe went over their heads. But some people could have been very, very cognizant of it and understand what they were saying. Now, one of the cool things about your book is that you had the opportunity to have the foreword written by an important person in Twilight Zone history, George Clayton Johnson who has since passed, I understand, but tell us who he was and uh, tell us about having the opportunity to have him write that for you, because I think that had to be pretty, pretty thrilling. Uh, It
1: was, but it was more amusing to hear it from George's own words. He was very appreciative that over the years, his career as a writer of fantasy, which the difference between fantasy and science fiction is whether the science, whether the fiction is probable versus improbable. Um, in other words, uh, angels or time tra- time travel is probably improbable, whereas traveling through outer space is probable. And uh, he was almost a nobody at the time, but he was gifted at coming up with ideas. And he went to uh, Charles Beaumont, who was basically Rod Serling's right hand man for uh, scripts and stories on so Twilight Zone. And uh, his- Beaumont said, "Look, I- I'll give you a you give up a- the story idea. I'll write the script. I'll use my name and." You'll get the checks. He says, uh, He says, I, I, and basically, the rule of thumb was, uh, Beaumont said, you're going to get it on your resume. Don't worry about credit for the early one or two, scripts or three. Once we get it through, we'll tell Rod, hey, he's doing it. This guy's really the one doing it. And it turns out there was a respect among the group, and it was almost a tight-knit group. They had pool parties. They had backyard barbecues. They'd throw ideas around. And you had Charles Beaumont, Richard Matheson, and so on. And uh, George Clayton Johnson was kind of like the late boy, late bloomer, who one guy took under his wing, and uh, they both kind of nudged him and said, "Good job, keep coming up with ideas." It was all about the craft and telling a cool story. It was not, and if there was any rivalry, it was just to see if they could come up with a better story than the other one for the sake of the program. And as a result, his career boosted, and he to this to the day he died always said. God bless Rod Serling and Charles Baumont and so on. I wouldn't be where I, was, where I am today if it wasn't for him. And he was very respectful and appreciative over that.
0: Well, one thing when I asked you the question about why is The Twilight Zone still so powerful for people, and one thing that I'm sure you would point to and I would point to, whether you're talking about a comedy series like a Seinfeld or something like that, or a, a drama like a Sopranos or you're talking about The Twilight Zone, if the words aren't on the page, then the actors can't act it. So I have to say, I believe that maybe the number one reason for the success of this program was the writing. What what do you think?
1: Correct. And that was where... Um, The old saying is you start with a story first. You come up with a concept, and that's what the writers were doing then, and they didn't realize it later that became the most recommended uh, factoid that's in college and universities today for creative writing, and that is come up with a concept and come up with an ending. Don't just write it and hope you'll come up with an ending later. So they'd come up with these cool stories and concepts. They all learned from Rod Serling, who passed it on to them, and advice he received from one of his uh, agents early on, Blanche Gaines, who said, Learn to throw three things away for every four you write. That way, your best of the material is what's being used. And Serling did not follow that advice early on. Later, he did. He'd write concepts down, maybe one out of 40. He'd come back to later and say, okay, this really would be a great idea. And He's motivated to write a teleplay that day. So they all kind of taught each other, and they all became masters of the craft. But they all agreed it's the story concept, which is why they would sit at the backyard barbecue, hang around the pool party just throw out ideas. And sometimes Matheson would come up with an idea, but he couldn't come up with an ending and someone else would come up with it. And it wasn't a matter of taking credit. So Beaumont could have came up with the twist ending. Matheson could have came up with the premise. And then the director, while producing it, said, okay, production-wise, we can't film the ending this way. Let's do it this way. So it was basically formulated by three different people, but they didn't care. Everybody got a paycheck. Everybody's getting their name somewhere throughout the series. And that's the best kind of arrangement you could have when it comes to storytelling.
0: I I mean, we look at the Twilight Zone as a huge success, but really how popular was it when it was actually first run on the air?
1: That's the funny part. Um, Historically, through hindsight, every time there's a popular program today or a cult status, that means there's like a large number of people, especially on the Internet when they gather in groups or fan clubs, they turn around and they say, oh, this this was the most popular program in the world. They're speaking romantically. Um, When the show was on the air, it was not even in the top 20 at best ratings. In fact, CBS canceled it twice during its entire run. And uh, on one occasion when they would not renew, it was the producer, Buck Houghton, who contacted CBS and said, look, if you're going to do another season, it's cheaper if we know now and we can make the arrangements. It's going to cost more money later. And since CBS paid 50% of the budget, he convinced them and they gave him an early renewal. And he turned to Serling and says, I know how to, and Serling knew. He said that Houghton knew exactly what he was doing, but the network did not look highly of it. It was not high ratings and it was not as popular, even though a board game and a couple books were published here and there, it wasn't mass marketed. And yet today, I would say there's more fans today who are... Fanatics about the show watch every reunion, every marathon. They're on Facebook making comments and trivia and posting pictures. I would say today's fan base has more T-shirts and action figures and comic books, and they buy so much more merchandise than there was ever made back then. So it's more of a mass market, small niche. I wouldn't even say small. There's probably like half a million people who are fanatics on the show. It's 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 more popular now than it was back then. We'll put it that way.
0: Well, it's interesting. I think some of these actors who ended up being in some of the classic episodes, you know, Cliff Robertson with the dummy, William Shatner uh, with uh, Nightmare, I can't remember how many tens of thousands of feet. But but some of these actors who were in some of these classics, I bet they were, and many of them have passed by now. I mentioned Cliff Robertson, for example, but many of them had to be very surprised that decades later... This was, despite how many great things they did, great movies, great TV series that they did, that this was still, even for the most accomplished of them, one of the main things they were remembered for because Shatner, although obviously a huge success with uh, Star Trek, particularly uh, after the 80s, kind of the same way, it wasn't as big a success in the 60s, how it went on to become such a big success in the 80s and beyond with the movies and so forth. but. Still, a lot of people say, yeah, Captain Kirk and the thing right after Captain Kirk doesn't come T.J. Hooker or anything like that. It's like, oh, yeah, he saw the monster on the wing of the plane. So, I I mean, I bet these actors were kind of surprised by this legacy that the Twilight Zone has had.
1: Yes and no. Back then, they were hired because they were part of an agency. Usually what happened was Houghton would look over the the list, let's say, I don't know, the Steiner Agency sent them a list of, say, 50, 60 actors, and said, these are actors who could do starring roles, not supporting roles. And they'd look over, and they'd say, what's the budget? And the agency would say, well, except for one or two of them, they're all, you know, $2,000 an episode, which was at least decent money. for. In, like, in other words, average. They weren't big-name celebrities appearing on Star on on uh, Twilight Zone. And the agency would pick whoever, and by coincidence, later on, a lot of those actors, like Robert Redford and William Shatner and Robert Duvall, would end up going on to bigger and greater things through luck of the draw, because there was a lot of other actors who would play big roles, but they never went on to anything major. But the funny part is, as you were kind of emphasizing, I know celebrities who have done autograph venues or get fan mail in the in the mail, and uh, more than one of them, I think at least a dozen, have told me, they said, look, I did Dallas, I did this show, I did that show, I did, the, I was a star of this show. They said, and yet it doesn't matter. They will get more fan mail from people who love them on the Twilight Zone, that one Twilight Zone episode, than the four years they start on another program. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's amazing. I think Shatner might be the exception because of Star Trek, but even like, let's say, uh, um, Robert Redford – he probably you know, He's one I talked to, but I didn't talk about fan mail. I would imagine he falls under the same category as quite a number of others. He probably gets just as equally amount of fan mail, if not more, for Twilight Zone than he does anything else he's ever done in his life, just because there's a lot of fan, fans of Twilight Zone who collect autographs. And uh, that's just the way, I guess, things are. Even June Ferre, who was the voice of uh, uh, Talkie Tina, she was just the voice in that one episode. And she, she says that and Rocky and Boink are the two biggest – make up 90% of the fan mail she gets today just because she voiced a killer doll for about, I think, probably about eight minutes of audio maximum for a
0: 25-minute episode. Yeah. I'm going to kill you. That is still a chilling – Chilling, and Telly Savalas, who went on to great things with uh, Kojak, of course. Now, uh, how long did one of these episodes take to shoot? I mean, people might think it took weeks and weeks and weeks, but I think it was a pretty quick operation for budgetary purposes. How quickly would they shoot an episode?
1: Well, Twilight Zone was actually more than most. Um, Usually, the production for any half-hour show was two to three days, usually three days in the 50s. Um, If it was an hour-long show, they tried to do it in five days, not six. So if you see like an hour-long episode of Cheyenne from Warner Brothers, it probably took six days because they filmed on location and all that. Twilight Zone was shot in two days usually, sometimes three. But the uniqueness was, unlike most television productions, they actually would have a day of rehearsal, which was unheard of because it still costs money for people to do lights and makeup and so on. Rod Serling learned that from the days of Playhouse 90 and live TV, where they would spend a week or two doing nothing but a rehearsals, dress rehearsals, etc. So they knew their lines inside and out, and they played the characters like it was the 50, 50th or 60th time when they went to actual broadcast. I remember Richard Matheson told me he was sitting around doing the sit-down, which they all did. He would sit around the table, and everybody reads their lines, kind of dramatic reading, and then when we we're done, they would normally just go to film. And he said instead they'd spend the rest of the day. The director would show them the sets. Here's how we're going to film it. We're going to put the camera under here and do an undershot. And then they do one day of rehearsal. And the writer was allowed to be on the set, and he could change things at the last minute. Sometimes, like uh, Cliff Robertson, he changed. He decided the hat he should wear for a hundred yards over the rim was a stove top height hat. The director said, No, that doesn't work and he said, I read it about this in a book. That's what people wore when they went through the desert. And they got Serling on the set and Serling said, Look, I wrote the script. If he says he's supposed to wear the pot the pot the, the stovepipe hat, then he wears a stovepipe hat. And the Matheson said it was extremely rare and he learned that later on through other programs, he said there was barely rehearsals, let alone the writer sitting in and being able to comment, change, and accept any differences. Usually you got your paycheck and they produced it and you had no other involvement. So Twilight Zone really had that extra craft. And I think that's part of why the productions hold up better than most 50s TV productions.
0: Now, you mentioned the Robert Duvall episode, and I remember this because I I, I discovered the Twilight Zone in the early 80s. I'm in my late 40s, and uh, one of the local stations started running it like 11 o'clock at night or something, so I would watch it and got totally hooked then. And I remember uh, sometime in the 80s, there was some special, and they aired the Duvall episode, and apparently it was like a lost episode or one that hadn't been aired for years. What was the deal with that?
1: Well, what happened was, like any anthology, where each week it's a different story, If they even did a vampire story, someone was going to crawl out of the woodwork and claim, well, you stole my idea of a story. And in reality, most of the writers, all the writers, including Sterling, never stole ideas from someone. But in some cases, like if you remember the episode of the stopwatch where the guy would click the stopwatch – And Richard Erdman would freeze time, and he'd do what he wants, and click it again and unfreeze it. Um, When somebody – it was a college professor who sent him a three-page synopsis and said, I came up with an idea. I'm not a professional writer. I thought you might like the idea of a story. And Serling wrote a letter back with a contract and said – I know it's unusual, but then again, we're not orthodox here. He said, uh, I've read 15, must've been 15 versions of a stopwatch story that froze time. And yours is the first one that's original and it's different from everyone else's. Sign, sign your name on this payment. We'll send you Edna's contract agreeing to sell us the story rights. I'll write the script or a friend will, and I'll send you a check. And the guy signed it, sent it and got a check in the mail. And uh, that's how it came about. And Serling probably said, Well, look, if we do any type of story, someone's going to turn around and claim we stole it from them. So we have to wait till someone can produce an original story idea that's one we've never read. So they were honest, but what happened was a number of people over the years would threaten lawsuits. And it doesn't mean you're guilty when you settle out of court. It's just cheaper and quicker to get the people out and you're buying them off. And so there was four or five episodes over the years that The lawsuit CBS did not want to potentially revisit. So in the 80s, what they did is they did that special you were referring to, and they played two half-hour episodes and the one-hour long, which has uh, Robert Duvall. And they had never had them in reruns all the years because they didn't want to revisit a potential lawsuit coming back at them. They went through the paperwork and said, look, when we set it out of court, we are allowed to screen these. And they said, well, it's been long enough. So they called it The Lost Episodes, and all they did was really just re-air them for the first time since. And now they re-air all the time because the network said, yeah, we, we we are okay about this. Back then they were a bit more leery. So that's what it was. It was the first time seen in decades because they would not allow them in reruns because they were afraid someone was going to come out of the woodwork and say, oh, my mother filed a lawsuit. She won a court case. You're not supposed to air it. And then they could pull out the paperwork now and say, no, she settled. It says we can air them
0: cool i'm glad that that's the case because really is it is really truly some of the great art of, of uh, the 20th century in terms of american art i i think it does rise to the level of art
1: correct and it's and the directors were very creative i think during the third season there were two episodes total where the directors were assigned episodes and in advance they said look i'm not favorable on the story idea i'm not sitting here going oh i want to do this i got some ideas And as a result, the productions were so bad, they went back and filmed it a second time and then merged both productions together, interlaced. And you see two directors credited in the opening credits, mainly because it was the best they could put together under the circumstances. And, uh, but most cases from the first three seasons, when the ideas and stories came through, the directors had a choice of which ones they did. And it basically, they said, if you have creative ideas and you think this would be a cool episode, we'll let you film it. And that's, it, instead of an assignment, it was really all craft and it is art. It was art and it looks, looks gorgeous for the first two years, especially.
0: Now, in terms of the twilight zone, Uh, If you look at it, it really stands alone in terms of anthology series of the like. I mean, you have The Outer Limits, which many people consider very good, and I enjoy it, but it ain't The Twilight Zone. Of course, you had Rod Serling with his own effort, Night Gallery. Uh, You had shows, I remember James Coburn had a show on ABC in the 80s that lasted for like half a minute called Dark Room, which still had one of my favorite all-time twilight zone type stories about a man who used a shortwave radio to try to stop his late father from being killed in a nazi sub-attack and ended up changing world history i mean that that was a very twilight zony kind of thing uh but why haven't we seen a show that has been able to replicate what the twilight zone was i mean there have been many 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 attempts
1: there have been but the the funny part is uh I think a few of them came close and probably were just as equal. The flaw is that unless you're going to film it in black and white, make it 25 minutes and have the same exact type of dialogue, it's never going to be the same. It's kind of like old-time radio. You could have a bunch of people get up on stage with sound effects and scripts and, and so on and do a radio drama like they did in the 30s and 40s. But it's just not the same. And anybody in the room who listens and closes their eyes says, Okay, that's a nice Jack Benny, but it's not the same Jack Benny I've heard in the old recordings in the 30s, 40s. It's more of a reenactment. It's a slew. I don't think, even with revivals that they've done, while the stories can be good and they can be entertaining and they can use the name, the those original 156 are pretty much the standard. Everything else is just inspired by but it is a compliment to see shows like Netflix has one called The Black Mirror. I think it just premiered, and they're carrying it over from a series that was done in England. And they're literally comparing it to The Twilight Zone today. They're using those very words. That's a compliment. That's a compliment. And so in and, and reality, at, le- at the very least, you throwing that compliment around. Uh, even the younger generation is somewhere along the line going to say that's the third time I've heard a show in the last couple of years that said there it's it's a lot like Twilight Zone and they want to know what Twilight Zone is and they're going to take a look at it and watch it.
0: Well, I've watched Black Mirror. It's very good. It's interesting because it takes uh, it takes place in like uh, history, what you would imagine to be ten years from now, like with our technology, just not. Just slightly better than what we have now, and kind of the so. It very much has to do with the technology and and how mankind will adapt to it. In that regard, I think it's extremely fresh and new and something different. I think it's very good. It still ain't the Twilight Zone. <laughs>
1: I'll give you a funny story. Um, you remember in the 1980s there was a TV show called Amazing Stories.
0: Absolutely, Steven Spielberg was behind that, right?
1: Correct. It is a magnificent series. Half of the, It's like Twilight Zone. One-third are gems, one-third are okay entertainment, one-third are duds. That's how Serling described Twilight Zone years later. Th- there was a story that goes by, and it's according from Re- uh, Richard Matheson, that one day he got a phone call from Steven Spielberg's secretary and said, and this is in the early 80s, they said, we're trying to find a recording of a Twilight Zone episode you wrote called Little Girl Lost. Girl Goes to the Wall, Another World you don't happen to have a copy since you wrote the script. He goes, yeah, I videotaped it off a late night channel. She goes, kid, Mr. Spielberg, borrow it. We'll send you the video back. So he does. And it gets sent back a few months later. And then a year or two later, someone comes by at Richard Matheson and says, hey, I see they took your Twilight Zone story and made a movie out of it. He goes, what? They go, yeah, it's called Poltergeist. And he went to see it. And he went to an attorney and the attorney said, did yours involve poltergeist? He goes, no. Was it a house? No. Did you bring a mystic in to try to get the girl off? No. And the attorney says, they're a major law, they're a major studio. You are a little guy. So Matheson did not file a suit. Instead, sent a letter to Serling and said, I never voiced anger. I just said, I'm just disappointed. I expected better from you.
0: You mean Spielberg, right?
1: Right. Matheson wrote a script, a letter to Spielberg and yeah. said, I'm just disappointed. I expected better from you. He said that must have bothered him because two two or three years later, he gets a phone call from the secretary again. And she says, Mr. Spielberg's doing a TV show. and It's going to be on NBC. It's called Amazing Stories. He wants to know if you want to be story editor, and we're going to pay you X number of dollars. And Matheson was about to say no because take it personal and then realized, wait a second, per episode, wow, that's a lot of money. And he said, sure, but I get choice of stories. They said, yes. Here's the ironic part. Matheson took one of the stories that he wrote for Twilight Zone that never got used because during the last season of Twilight Zone, a new producer came in and said, oh, no, no, these two or three stories we're not doing. We're going to toss these and use a different stories, et cetera. Well, Matheson took that story for that was never used on the Twilight Zone called The Daw with John Lithgow in the Amazing Stories rendition. It won the Emmy for Best Story of the Year. <laughs> for amazing story on amazing story. so Matheson actually had something really beautiful, and it turns out if it was on Twilight Zone, it may not have won the Emmy.
0: Wow! Now, um, two questions uh, about Serling. One is obviously he died very young uh, of heart issues and so forth. In fact, I was just in—I believe it was um, Bingham. It was at Binghamton, where I don't know if that's where he's from or where he passed. I was in or Rochester. I was in the town where he passed, and I. I happened to be in that area for something, and um, there was the hospital, I'm like, oh, my God, this is where Rod Serling passed, and he actually passed on my birthday. I think it was 75 or 76. I can't remember the year, and uh, I was either six or seven years old, and that's before I even really knew who he was, although I kind of had a – passing knowledge of him from Night Gallery, the guy with the suit. I didn't really know much about him, but uh, that that was kind of weird for me. But the thing is about Sterling, uh, why didn't Night Gallery match The Twilight Zone? Because from at least where I've been able to pick up between the lines, sounds like that was a really frustrating event for him.
1: So Night Gallery was, uh, he signed a deal with NBC. He wanted to have another anthology series. And everything went smooth, but he didn't realize the terms of the contract. And after the second season, they basically turned around and said, we're going to choose the stories for the most part. They took over most of the production, and Serling lost all the creative control, practically. But he was stuck hosting the series, and with his name on it, and that was what he was disappointed in. And said, look, if I don't choose the stories, why is my name on there? But under contract, he had to fulfill that. And so that's why a lot of people criticized the third season being – uh, a considerable drop down from the first two seasons which are fantastic and the reality is that's just the way hollywood works and unless you can predict that far enough in the future you know you can't get whatever is in the contract you sign if you sign for a five-year commitment you're stuck for a five-year commitment
0: the interesting thing about night gallery when you look back at there was some pretty dark stuff in that i mean there was like borderline satanism <laughs> I mean, it was kind of it was a it it was a little darker turn. I don't know if that was Serling or if that was the network, but there was some. It got a little more uh, a little more. I don't know, occult, I guess, for lack of a better word.
1: Um, Serling was getting more of a fascination for that considerably as through the seventies. After Twilight Zone, he was considering bringing another anthology almost immediately. If it wasn't for the fact that The Loner sold, which was a western, he did. Um, he was going to have one called witches, warlocks and something else. And I think what happened is eventually there was a paperback novel and three stories he had conceived for that potential show was made into short stories and made into like a book and was published, but he was planning to do something that would be a little bit more like that. He was just getting more fascinated by the unknown, the, a call to the, the ESP and all Ironically, the last year Twilight Zone was on, Outer Limits had premiered, and Outer Limits did what Twilight Zone did, just took it up a notch, and a very fantastic notch. And Serling was jealous, because at the end of the, the last season of the Twilight Zone, when there was still a little debate with the network whether they were going to do a sixth season, there's an inner office memo where he says, if we get renewed, I want to do more outer space stuff, have more aliens. He says, I want to have a couple of two-parters, and the ideas he was conceiving, you could clearly see he, he was watch a devout follower of uh, Outer Limits and was impressed and said, okay, this is where they, they took it up a notch. Now I need to match, go up with them, but he never had that opportunity, so it would have been, as he called it, more far-out outer space stories if he had his opportunity.
0: You know, one thing that I wonder about—I I did not ask the daughter of Sterling about this because I just didn't want to be uh, disrespectful. I believe it's Anne Sterling. I'm looking at the book, but I'm squinting to see her name. I believe it's Anne Sterling. I, I would like to think that the family has benefited financially from the success of the Twilight Zone. I hope that somehow that's worked out for them. Has it worked out for them to the best of your knowledge?
1: To my knowledge, and I don't know the family personally, and that's debatable. In 1964, after Twilight Zone was over the air, sorry, 60, March of 65, at that time, the only way you made additional money off a show that was no longer on the air was not T-shirts. I think there was some co- a comic book run that was still going on, but it was practically pennies, um, was TV reruns, and there was not at that time mass merchandise as there is today. So he sold his 50% interest, and his wife owned 50% of the 50% interest at Cayuga. Both of them signed the papers and signed it over to CBS. And from that day forward, CBS owned Twilight Zone's lock, stock, bond, name, trademark, everything, 100%. Over the decades now, you know, nobody had the foresight to anticipate T-shirts, board games, collectibles, action figures, all that DVDs. Who would have thought? in the 1960s, or even in the 70s, that you could just click a button on a little remote and you can watch it streaming on Netflix. And yes, CBS is making money. And I know firsthand from a few accounts, it's definite, the Sterling family is a little bit disappointed because they're not making money that their father had created and a uh, husband had created. But the reality is, as much as I would love to say they are, or they deserve to earn that, He did sign a legal contract and signed it over, and that was standard in the industry. It was not like the the network cheated him. I feel sorry for the Serling family because you would think they should get something. And they do get something from quite a lot of other projects he was involved with. But as for Twilight Zone, um, I think the only thing they can do is really cash in on his name but not the show. In other words, if they were going to do a book about – um, Rod Serling and the Twilight Zone—they actually have to get permission from CBS. And I know that sounds silly today, but that's not uncommon because there's lots of properties today that, you know, the creators of uh, Lone Ranger actually have to go to Disney and sign a 400-page contract if they want permission to do something with the Lone Ranger because they don't own it.
0: Wow, that's amazing. And the thing is, is I mean, as you said, you know, I'm looking right now. It looks like a new re-release of the Twilight Zone on Blu-rays coming out in December. And, uh, I'm probably going to order that, (laughs) but, but the point is the, the, the point is, is that who would have known who would have known that in a few little discs, uh, smaller than a 45, uh, that uh, <laughs> that uh, you could capture a whole run of a of a you know a show that was on for several years, let alone not even as you said streaming with Netflix. I know quite a few Twilight Zone episodes are on Netflix, so it is amazing. Well, before we go, and it's been a great conversation about the Twilight Zone. Just briefly, I wanted to mention. Now you've done a lot of work, and I think people should check out your website martingrams.com because if you're into classic TV, Martin is obviously an expert in this and has done a ton. I just wanted to ask you about the show, uh, though, which was roughly parallel time to that, was Alfred Hitchcock uh, Presents. Uh, Hitchcock, who was so successful in the the cinema and kind of considered an auteur and and has some of the greatest movies of like the the mid-20th century. Why did he do TV? Was it just simply a money play?
1: No, actually, he listened real carefully to Lou Wasserman, who was the head of MCA slash Universal Studios. They were very good friends, and Hitchcock, no matter how much authority and power he had in Hollywood um, as a director, anything Lou Wasserman told him, he did. There was like, there was no if ands or buts." And he, he respected Wasserman and his business decisions, and Wasserman said, "Look, it's, and this is around 1954, and he said, "We're getting into the television production end. We're going to create a studio called uh, Review Productions. We're going to do a bunch of TV shows. Just on the chance that television kills the st- Hollywood studio system, we can go into production on television. I'd like to have you on board." And then he told Sir, uh, he told Hitchcock, "Create your own production company. You own fifty percent of it, and et cetera." And they struck this massive deal. And he told him, he said, "Look, you'll put your face on the name on the cameras, and think about it carefully. If you're in American homes every weekend, every week for once a week for thirty some weeks a year, um, people are going to go to buy more tickets for your movies." And very slowly, Hitchcock discovered, "Yeah, he is not joking. There's a, there's more than one benefit to doing this." But Hitchcock's participation was very minimal. He did two things, and that was it, because he had people who ran the thing. Joan Harrison and Norman Lloyd were the producers. Um, Hitchcock chose the stories, though Hitchcock insisted it has to be already published stories, in other words, uh, to prove that they were already successful rather than coming up with an original concept. So even if he read a short story in a mystery magazine named after him and he liked the story, he'd go to them and say, ''By the rights, this would be a great episode.'' The only other thing he did was the hosting chores, and all he did was go in there about one afternoon to film five or six, and then we'll go back six or eight weeks later and do another batch. And and that was all he really did. He had very little participation other than approval of story and hosting them. And once in a great while, about one or two times a year, Norman Lloyd would say, we got an episode, we want you to see and tell us if you think there's anything that needs to be tweaked. And he'd watch The Rushes. But normally, he just watched them when they first aired on TV, like the most of the American
0: public. Well, another classic TV show, and certainly check out Martin's book on that. Martin, where can people find all the information on everything you do, the Twilight Zone book, the other books, and the website, of course?
1: Well, it's easy. They can go through my website because there's samples of the book. Um, there's reviews, there's trivia. I give a bunch of free stuff and cool links for the subjects as a geek, uh, not professional though. I kind of prefer to point out some obscure sites that might have archival documents that you might not find under Wikipedia or Google. So it's worth browsing. My website is named after me, martingrams.com. It lists all the books I've written. Um, you can buy them direct through the website, um, when you buy it through the website, it's done through PayPal, which you can use a credit card. And if you make mention about uh, in the comments section, you want it autographed, I can autograph it. On Amazon.com, I practically get pennies. That's Amazon. And can not you can't get it autographed either through Amazon. So best source is martingrams.com. And there's a whole, even if you're not going to buy a copy of the book, you'll read a lot of samples and trivia and tidbits. And makes it more fun to read. So it's worth checking out.
0: Martin Grahams, thank you for joining us today on the program.
1: Pleasure being on the program. Thanks.
0: Submitted for your approval, with apologies to Mr. Serling. Love that show. Love the Twilight Zone. And I hope that you enjoyed this program, and I hope that you will go subscribe, rate, and review, because it's a case where... This is a labor of love. I love doing this show. We're not making a penny on it. In fact, it is a cost in terms of time and hosting and all of that. But I'm glad to do it. But I have to have an audience. And the only way we can get an audience, because we don't have those big marketing budgets and all of that, is to have you spread the word. So if you enjoy what we do here with this new series, TV You Grew Up With, please tell your friends online and off. Please go wherever you may listen, subscribe, rate, and review, because the only way that we can continue to do this show is if we can grow the audience and the only way we can grow the audience is through you. So basically you get to make the decision, a thumbs up to TV you grew up with, or maybe it's something that has been submitted to your approval and you were saying, "Yeah, I'm not so crazy. about." <laughs> but I tend to think people like this show who listen. I just think we need to get a lot more of them. And with your help, I'm confident that we can. We thank you so much and we'll talk to you next time, not in the Twilight Zone, but on TV you grew up with. Stay tuned.